This morning, we're talking about prayer. Uh, Prayer is what today's parable is all about. Prayer is an interesting thing, though, uh, because I actually think prayer is really common. Prayer is a common thing in all of life. Uh, At the NCAA basketball tournament right now, uh, the stadiums are filled with people praying. Uh, you like look at the shots of the fans and everything, and even the players, and their their hands are clasped together, and they're they're praying. Half of them are praying that the point guard, you know, makes the free throws at the end of the game, and the other half is praying uh, that they don't, right? And then I'm just at home praying that they stop fouling and the game can be over because uh, it just takes so long in college. Uh, but prayers are common. They happen in testing labs where, we're, where engineers and scientists are, are trying to solve problems, and, and people are praying, hoping, clinging to the fact that maybe this test will, will operate the way that they've always hoped, uh, that, that they'll be able to move forward. Uh, prayer is in boardrooms. I, I know it for sure, where people are looking at balance sheets and, and praying that something will change before they have to release that to the public at the end of the court, uh, quarter. Uh, prayer happens all the time. Uh, tonight, there will be famous people uh, all dressed up really nicely uh, at, a, at a mall, a movie theater. I always think that's, anyone ever been, that's a movie theater in the mall where the Oscars are held? It's pretty funny. It's like you could go Panda Express and then you go to the Oscars. But there'll be a room full of people, their, their hands will be like kind of clasped together in their seats, praying that they will win that award that will validate them completely. But then even more seriously, I, you know, in the first days of the, the invasion of Ukraine, there were shots of uh, just these older women in the streets uh, of the Ukraine praying, hoping that God would spare them uh, tragedy and war and violence. Prayer is common in war rooms, in hospitals, uh, in homeless shelters. Prayer is just really present. And that's what I mean when I say prayer is this common thing. Nearly everyone prays. Nearly everyone cries out to God. Uh, What's not really surprising uh, is that people pray. What is shocking to me uh, as a person who prays pretty frequently, just to brag, I pray, I try to pray. Uh, what is really shocking and surprising to me is all of those saints, all of those disciples who continue to pray, who keep praying day by day, year after year, in the tragedies and the pains and the afflictions of life, they just keep praying. To be a person of prayer is to be a person that's just acquainted with silence. Uh, not, Not your silence, but often the silence of God. To be a person who's dedicated to prayer is to be a person who's surrounded by inactivity. Not your own inactivity, but seemingly an inactive God. Uh, And it's not just our problem. It's not like, man, we're just really messed up in our prayer lives today. It's ancient. It's an ancient issue. Uh, The scriptures are filled, and this is just a quick sampling of the people who struggled to pray or struggled to hear God uh, in prayer. Psalm 10, 1, the psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22, 1 to 2 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, You might recognize those words from the final words that Jesus shares uh, from the cross where he even feels forsaken and a God that's silent. But the the psalmist continues, he says, why are you so far from helping me? 
from the words of my groaning. Is that there's this person groaning out in prayer, and it feels like God's just even far from those words themselves. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Psalm 77, 8 to 9 says this. It says, has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his justice? The, the question for us and the question that this parable asks is why? If all of that is true for us in our lives and our souls, and I, I you know, know most of our stories in this room, we've been in those moments crying out to God. And, and it feels like God is silent and he's far from our groans, as if his steadfast love has ceased. Why do we keep praying? Why do we not give up? Why are we persistent in it? That's what this parable is all about. It's from Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, and I'm going to read it now. It says this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. See, I wasn't just joking. That's what this parable is about. And this is what Jesus said. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And then the Lord, Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for, the, for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. Amen. This is a parable uh, about a widow and a judge in a certain town, uh, a nameless town. And th this widow, uh, often we might not realize this, but widows in the Jewish society were granted tons and tons of rights, uh, privileges, and they weren't granted them because at one point they thought these laws were really good and they kind of crafted these. They were granted rights uh, and privileges because the very word of God spoke them uh, into a reality. Uh, because in these Jewish societies, they, they followed the scriptures, and so that was the law. The, the scriptures were the rules of everything to do. And, and we might often think about, you know, well, true religion is caring for the orphans and the widows, and we, we hear that often, like the Old Testament cares about the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien. Uh, but I just want to read some of the passages for us because we say that a lot, but maybe we don't understand just how much this widow had rights and privileges. In Exodus 22, uh, verses 22 and 23, this is when the law and the commands of God are being given to the people uh, as they're in the desert about to enter into the Holy Land. And this is what it's, uh, this is a commanded from God. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. This is God saying, you can't mistreat widows or orphans. 
Because if you do, I'm going to hear it, I'm going to know, I'm going to see. Pretty serious. Deuteronomy 14, this is when Moses is giving his final speech before they go into the land. And he says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Uh, This is a great uh, passage where he's explaining that that the way to live out a just society, the way of God where community thrives, is that every three years people create and they produce all of this stuff, all of this food, and then they bring it in, 10% of everything that they made, they bring it into the center of the town, and the widows and the orphans come and they eat that. And this isn't just a God saying, hey, here's a really fun idea. Like, this is really cool. Like, if you want to, you can open up a soup kitchen or something for vulnerable people. He's saying, no, you have, like, this is the law. This is the way you reflect my love in the world. That 10% belongs to the widow. It's pretty, pretty impactful. Last one, Isaiah 1, 17. This is when the prophet's trying to call people back to just worshiping and walking in the ways of God. He says this. He says, learn to do good. Learn to do good. Learn to seek justice. Correct oppression, then specifically bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. The prophet's talking about how the, the, them as people should stand in the wake of oppression, seek to, to correct it, be an advocate on their behalf. But in this parable, no one is pleading her cause. She has to seek justice for herself. There's no one else around. She isn't receiving the care that she's due, or perhaps, much worse, it's kind of like the first passage I read, someone is mistreating her. Quick aside, there's lots of just uh, extra-biblical evidence that at this time and this era of Israel and Samaria, the widows were not being cared for. Like, none of those commands were being practiced. At that time, it was one of those things where you kind of just shrug your head and you, or your shoulders and you say, that's just the way the world works, you know? People without husbands end up destitute. The, the people, you know, should have married a healthier man. You know, and, and it's just like, yeah, that's how it works. If you don't have parents, you just, you struggle. It was that kind of thing. And the people listening to this parable would have kind of thought that as well. It would have been just a common injustice. So common, we just say, well, that's the way it is. It is what it is. But here she is advocating because someone is mistreating her. And I know that uh, even in your life, you've been in circumstances, you've been in places, you've been in situations, maybe not as dire as this you know, figurative widow, but where your boss just does not care about you at all, where you're just put out there as the person to be beat up by the company. You've, had, you've been disregarded by your families, by other people, by society, in school, all of those things. You've experienced injustice, like that's what it is to live in this world. What makes this person so uh, appealing and so uh, sort of an awe that I have for her is that she just continually fights for what she knows God has given her. She continually fights for what she knows the world was created to be like. She knows that God, the very voice of God, the heart and the character of God says, I matter. 
And this widow, it's as if she grabs onto this judge and she will not let him go. Some of the language used is kind of the idea of a dog that's just like chewing up a bone and will not let go. Like that's what she's doing to this judge. This judge, he could be the main character of this parable. If you had to title it, you might say it's the parable of the judge. He's the first person that comes up. And what they say about him is he's a person who doesn't care about anyone. He just doesn't care. Uh, this phrase, uh, you know, he, has, he doesn't fear God nor care what anybody else thinks. That's repeated twice. Even the judge says it about himself. That's a phrase used over and over just to describe someone who's above the law, who is so powerful. He doesn't even have to play politics. There's no one he has to answer to. He is on his own. He has all the authority. He doesn't have to give out justice. No one's going to vote him out. No king is going to come and remove him. He just does not care about anything. He is that powerful. And she continually nags this judge. Continually, persistently, urgently. Uh, The other parable that Jesus tells about uh, prayer, there's a neighbor who persistently, you know, bangs on the door of a friend saying, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread, right? Y'all remember that? A long time ago, two months ago. Eight weeks ago, it's tough to remember. But in that, that, there's this relational proximity. That whole parable is about two friends. And, and, and the, the parable is like, you, everyone would do that for their friend, right? Like, that's the idea of that parable. But what uh, is telling about this parable is that the judge has no relational proximity. Everyone would be shocked to imagine this judge granting justice at all. But he finally relents, this judge, not because he felt bad or had compassion on this woman, though he, he should have, right? He should have had some compassion on this woman. And he doesn't relent because he finds her case really compelling, which he should have found compelling, right? I just read you the law. Like, he, he was, it's clear what he was supposed to do, but that's not why he did it. Uh, and it wasn't because it was just the right thing to do. He only relents, he says, he only finds favor with her in the court because this justice thinks that she is so nagging, so persistent, so committed to her cause for justice that he's like, she might hurt me eventually. The one who fears no one is suddenly afraid of the most vulnerable in all society just because she's so persistent. And then Jesus says, keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Because if this judge, who doesn't care about anything, is capable of giving justice, how much more, he says, will God answer your prayers and give you justice? pretty great. We keep praying because we know who God is. It's not, hey, keep praying because God is like this judge, and eventually God's going to get tired. And if there is any character in any story, in any reality that is above the law, who does not have to care what anybody thinks, it's God. But we know that, that God is not like that at all. He's not like this judge. He's not requiring us to nag him so much. And our persistence in prayer, why do we keep praying when God is silent? Why do we keep praying when we're praying for a war to relent, but the war continues? Why do we keep praying? Because we trust God to be God. 
We keep praying and we never give up because we know that the very heart and the character of God is one who will never give up on you and me and this world, right? That's such great news. He's the judge, we know from the whole story. He's the judge who sits and he, he's the only one worthy to judge the whole world. And he looks at what's happening. He looks at your life and my life and all the billions of people from past and the future. And he looks at all of us and he says, y'all are found wanting. Like none of you measure up. Like all the law, the legal arguments, like no one is worthy. Like that's what Romans is about, which we studied last year, right? We've all sinned, we've all trespassed, we've all fallen short. What are the, what's due us? What's the, the conviction that we're supposed to receive? What's the sentence? It's supposed to be death, right? Like that's the whole reality of God as a judge. But he's such a better judge than the one in this parable. Because what he says is, okay, that's it. That's the punishment that fits the crime. That's the, the nature of this world. And instead of destroying the world, God enters into it. It says, I'm going to take on all sin, death, brokenness, evil. I will take on all your rebellion, all your wounding, and all of your abusing of other people. He says, I'm going to take it on. I'm going to receive the conviction myself. That's the kind of judge that we have. That's who God, why do we keep praying? Why are we persistent in prayer? Because we know the one who judges the world is like that. Uh, it makes me think of, and it, I forgot that there was going to be a marathon today, but it makes me think of, uh, there's this documentary called The Skid Row Marathon. Has anyone watched that? came out in the middle of COVID. You should have streamed. It, was, it might, might have been too sad or too real. But it's a story about there's this man, Roderick Brown, uh, who was convicted of a crime, served time, was released, found himself into the Midnight Mission, uh, which is... You know how so many people end up in our city? And he was there, and then he was given, you know, the opportunity to make a phone call. And what he decided to do was to call up the judge who convicted him and sentenced him to jail. And he didn't call him up to, like, seek revenge, you know, or do one of those, I know where you live kind of things. He didn't do it just as, like, hey, this is what you did to me. No, this guy, Roderick Brown, he, he remembered that judge, and he remembered how kind and compassionate and fair he was. And he called him up because he wanted to reconnect with this man who had sent him to prison. And that's when this judge, Craig Mitchell, uh, walked the few blocks from his courthouse uh, to the mission and began to meet with him and, and meet other people. And it wasn't just a visit that he did once, but what he realized is that, there, that he liked to run, this judge, Judge Mitchell, and he invited these other people to come and run with him. Two mornings a week, uh, the, the judge would leave from spending a night trials of the hardest, most deep, uh, wounding, darkest parts of our city, the judge would leave that, take off his robe, and then run the streets of Skid Row with these people at risk of following deeper into violence, uh, deeper into addiction, deeper into loneliness, and he would run with them and created a whole running club. Uh, it's a nonprofit. You can look it up, the Skid Row Running Club. It's pretty amazing that what he did is he didn't just go when he visited these people or give them a sandwich or something or socks, which is, you know, if you go to Skid Row, like that's what people are doing. What this judge did is he, he came and he entered into their life. He left the office and he comes and he runs with people past the tent-filled, you know, urine-stained, trash-filled streets of our city with the very people that he's put in prison with the very people that he's seen the darkest of their days. Uh, the story you can learn more about, there's a podcast called The Human Race. It's really great. Or watch that documentary. 
My warning is the trailer is only a minute and 40 seconds long, and you will weep by the end of that trailer. So the whole thing is, you know, it's, it's a big ask, I know. But the beauty of the whole story is pretty hard to miss. The judge enters life with them and runs with them runs the, la- the race, elevates their life, gives them a purpose, gives them an identity. Like the testimonies of these people is unbelievable. Like how it, it completely transformed their life to see someone with great power enter into their world and walk their life alongside them. Uh, it's so beautiful, the impacts of redemption. Why do we keep praying? Because Jesus is a judge just like that, even better. Like Judge Mitchell, it just scratches the surface on the grace and the glory and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He meets us. He vindicates us. He's with us. We also keep praying, and this parable I think makes it clear too, we keep praying and we never give up because the matters and the issues that we're praying about are kingdom issues that matter to God. They're matters of justice. Just to remind us, these last verses, uh, six through eight, it says, and the Lord, uh, it's pretty amazing that Luke switches, he normally just says he or Jesus, but he switches it to Lord, meaning the king and the ruler. It says, he said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I think it's amazing because he doesn't say, uh, you know, will not God bring about all the answers to your prayers ever because he's a better judge? No, it says, won't God bring about justice? And not just a random justice, but a justice for his chosen ones, the people that he's decided to lavish his grace and his love on. He's going to bring justice for you. Will he, will he not give justice to those who are crying out day and night? The psalmist that we read about, will not God bring justice for them in their anguish and their agony? And then verse 8 uh, is one of the more difficult verses to translate in the whole New Testament because the words are hardly used in the New Testament. This is a, this is a big super aside. Are you all ready for it? It's really dorky. The way that we translate the New Testament and figure out what all of these words mean, because it's not modern Greek, like you can't go to Athens and be like, oh, that's how they, that's how they wrote the Bible. The language has changed a whole, whole bunch, like Beowulf. You read Beowulf in high school? So the way we translate is because we like look at the words and how they're used in all these other places, and we create this kind of aggregate of like, oh, this is how these words were used and how they mean, and this is how these words were used even outside of the Bible. Uh, that's pretty cool. It's really dorky, but that's why people go to school for like 20 years just so they can study these verses and verses like this. This verse, verse 8, is one of those challenging words where the words aren't used that much through the whole New Testament. They're not used in this way. But the translation that that is so good, it says that he will will see that they get justice and quickly. Uh, Another way, a prominent way to translate that is that he will, is happy to give justice even if he's patient in doing so. He is happy and eager to bring justice even if he's patient to bring it about. Justice is wrong things made right. It's wicked and evil being defeated. Justice is about the humble and the vulnerable being restored. 
And the whole of scriptures, and I'm not talking about our justice legal system or what we describe all the time uh, in media and stuff around social justice or any of those things, it definitely applies, but, but what the biblical story of justice is about is about the world being broken into pieces and then God restoring and reclaiming all the broken things. A just society in the scriptures is one in which we are all good with each other, that our relationships are right, that we have undying, affectionate love for each other. We all know injustice is a breaking of that, where there is no love, there is no sacrifice, we're all on our own. That's justice, a restoring of that, a restoring of the very peace of God where all humans are thriving in how they were created to be. But justice is even deeper than that. Justice is also, in the scriptures, how we relate to God. And all the broken parts of our relating and our being with God is suddenly restored and correct and right. That is justice. And Jesus is saying, will not God answer your prayers for justice? So keep praying. Keep praying. Uh, I think that one of the tragedies of our current like culture, uh, because we are prayer so common, uh, is that when something bad happens, some atrocity, some act of violence, something that, that makes us terrified, what we do in our response culturally, even outside of the church, people who don't even believe in God will say, man, I'm just sending out thoughts and prayers over there. Right? I think it's a huge tragedy that that's what we've done with those words. Because often, uh, that's just a way to skip over the dark, messy stuff. Uh, usually the thoughts are pretty shallow, and the prayer is as brief as it is just to say that. Thoughts and prayers to you. But what if we reclaim that? Uh, what if we were drawn into some deep thinking about when things are wrong and broken in our world? What if we sought soulfully God and his will and all of our prayers You know, I want to invite us into that profound practice of when tragedy comes, when there's a great injustice for us to think like prophets and ask questions like, how did this happen? How does this continually happen? How how deep does this issue go? What horrors is this one situation really just the tip of an iceberg of pain and brokenness? Uh, What root is this whole thing exposing? What beliefs undergird this atrocity that allows it to happen and allows it to continually happen? And how do I share in those beliefs that maintain it? How does the injustice that I'm seeing differ from the heart of God for humanity? What's the scope of Jesus' transformative gospel? What's the power that it can bring in those moments? How does Jesus deal with with this brokenness. That's, that's a lot of thinking, right? That's a deep thinking. But what if we thought, and what if we prayed, and we prayed deep prayers for justice? You know, often we, prayer for us is just a list of requests, which on its own is completely valid, to ask the creator of the world to do something. Like, that's always 100% valid and reasonable, God, you have everything. You did everything. You've created everything. Can you do something? Like, that's the most valid thing to do. If you're going to be a nagging widow with anybody, be it with the one who holds the whole universe in his hands and brings it all together, right? 
But what if prayer was even more than just petitions and asking God to do things, but if prayer was the journey in which uh, we carried ourselves to the very heart of God, we carried all of our own brokenness towards a caring Savior? What if prayer uh, was something that we did not just to solve a problem somewhere, but to, to carry our tears, our pain, our sin, and our anger before the very presence of God and his loving ear? Prayer is what happens when we see Jesus' will go deep into every atom of our entire existence, where it begins to animate and give us resolve to be agents of reconciliation in a world that's broken apart. Prayer brings us into contact with what's true about who God is, about his world, about ourselves. And we're sent back from prayer into a world where we say, I see the darkness and I will not look away. I will walk towards it as Jesus has done. And we pray also because we're pleading with the king who's bringing his kingdom. Why do we keep day after day just praying to God to stop wars, to stop agony, to stop cancer, to stop all of it? Why do we keep praying? Because we're praying to a God who delights in bringing his kingdom. We delight in a king whose kingdom is full of justice, of every broken relationship restored, every broken part of the human existence restored. It's justice for every one of us. And the the whole passage ends with Jesus asking this rhetorical question, will he find faith when he returns? One of Luke's best friends uh, was the Apostle Paul. They spent decades traveling around the Mediterranean, which sounds nice now, but at the time he was, you know, <laughs> shipwrecked and in prison and he was beaten up. It wasn't like, you know, the carnival cruise that you go on in the Mediterranean. But that's, they spent decades doing that together, starting churches all over uh, ancient Greece and Turkey. But the, the last bit of Paul's life was spent in prison for doing something he didn't do. He, he was in prison without even the opportunity to go before a judge. He waited years before anyone would even listen to his case. And eventually he said, I'm going to go to Rome. He appeals to Caesar. So they put him on a boat again, get shipwrecked, all sorts of crazy things, messy, messy life. And then finally he ends up in Rome where he just is there in house arrest year after year and eventually in the prison itself. Uh, as a kid, I got to go to Rome and see where he was chained just to a, a, a marble slab. But Paul, all through that time, all the letters, nearly all the letters, sorry, nearly all the letters that we have in the New Testament, he wrote while he was stuck in prison with judges who wouldn't hear his case. And it, the stuff that he kept saying was, I rejoice in the Lord, I continue to rejoice. He keeps talking about how much he's praying for all of these other people, how they're praying for him. This man, Paul, he just never stopped praying. No matter what he was in, And when Jesus says, will I find faith when I come back to earth? He's asking for that kind of faith. Faith in expecting God to be a good judge. Expecting there to be justice at the very end of the story. When we pray, do we expect the story to bend and turn, but ultimately complete itself on God making all things right? That is what faith is. And the good news is, is that the story does. The story bends that way. 
the story is about a just God making all of us who are unjust judges ourselves, who used to live life saying, I don't fear God and I don't care what anybody else thinks. And Jesus saying, I'm coming for you and I will give up my justice to make you just. The story ends on your own justification before God. That one day, when all the pain and the agony that you've experienced in this life, you will stand before the Father who looks at you and says, you are, you are in 